You may be seated. And as you are, open your Bibles, if you would, this morning again to Joshua chapter 7 and verse 1. You know, I want to give a quick review of just some of the principles that we've covered so far this month. And uh, first of all, we looked at Jonah chapter 4, and we saw that many of us are suffering from a dreadful condition, and that is lacking the heart of God. That even though that as a true believer in Jesus Christ, we have tasted the mercy and the grace of God and his saving grace, that many of us still, for whatever reason, do not have the heart of God. And we can tell because we have a greater desire, compassion, concern for the material things in this world that bring us temporal comfort than we do for the souls of men, women, and children who are dying apart from a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that's a hard thing to grasp. And I'm telling you, that has been incredibly convicting to me. And I've been asking that God would change my heart. See, this, this, week, this month is not merely about living simply and giving money uh, out and sending it out uh, to good, uh, very good um, uh, different missions-oriented um, organizations. But it's really about us desiring the heart of God and praying that God would give us His heart, that we'd come to love what He loves that we would hate what he hates, that we'd pursue what he pursues, and that ultimately that, we, that his will would be our will, that we would receive his will as our own. And the question that I've really posed is, what is that will? What is God's ultimate will? And we said that we found it in Revelation chapter 5. It's that people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, across the whole world will come to faith in our one true God. And so what I want is my heart wants to be the same. I want everything about me, and I know you want everything about you, to be about fulfilling God's great commission and His will here on earth. And so we saw that in week one. Last week we looked at a mother's choice, the blessed word of God out of 1 Kings chapter 17. And one of the points that we made is that the word of God is such a blessing. Why? Because it is the life-giving word of God. And I think that there was some confusion there. There's a lot of questions that were raised. And let me be very clear about this. Apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, apart from hearing the gospel with your own ears, okay, without hearing the gospel, a person cannot be saved. Now, the reason I say that is because oftentimes we begin to think about those that have never heard. Those that are in places where the gospel has never gone into unreached territories and countries and tribes and, you know, out in the bush somewhere where no, they have no access to the word of God. And people say, well, certainly they don't go to hell because they haven't heard the gospel. No, we go to hell not because we haven't heard the gospel, but because of what church? Because of our sin. But the truth of the matter is, is that person that we are so worried about will not and has no possibility of being saved apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some people believe that there are two different rules. They believe that those rules for those who have heard the gospel, if they accept it, they're saved. If they deny it, then they go to hell. But there's a completely different rule book for those who have never heard the gospel. And that's not what the word of God says. If it was better, if, if those who have not heard the gospel somehow are saved in a different way other than through the gospel of Jesus Christ, then listen, let us stop declaring the gospel. It is an injustice for us to share the gospel if people are going to be accountable for hearing it, you see? And God would have never said, go into all the world. He would have said, listen, let's just keep this secret. Don't tell anybody. Because I've got a different way to be able to bring these. If they reject it, they can't be saved, so don't tell anybody. But that's not it. He said to go into all the world and preach the gospel. The Bible is very clear in Romans ten seventeen that faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the what? 
the Word of God. It's the only way that we can be saved is through the Gospel. Well, this morning, we picked on mothers last week. No, I'm just kidding. Now we come to fathers, and this week we want to talk about a father's calamity, the sin of materialism. The sin of materialism. And we find ourselves in Joshua chapter 7 this morning. Many of you, how many of you were here last year during our series of the book of Joshua? Okay, about 16 of you. All right, that was great. Um, we're growing, I guess. Uh, or you just don't remember, okay? Uh, we went through the book of Joshua. One of the primary themes of that book was this. It was about entering into God's rest. As God was leading them into the promised land, it was a picture of a position between us and our God that we call God's rest. It's about allowing God to be God in our lives and allow Him and entrusting Him fully and completely for Him to meet our every need and not for you and I to lay our hands on things which God doesn't want us to have anything to do with. And that place of rest, completely entrusting ourselves with God, it is the place where God wants every single one of us. It's the most fulfilling place. It's the most satisfying place. It's the place of true faith and true satisfaction in God. But we found out during that study in chapter 7 that there was one man that didn't make it. He never truly experienced God's rest because he was sidetracked by his sin of materialism. And the gentleman that we're talking about is a man by the name of Achan. Now, when I talk about the sin of materialism, what I'm specifically talking about is this. We struggle with the sin of materialism when we have a greater desire for God's creation than we do for the Creator. When we have greater passions and affections for God's provision than we do for the provider of that provision. And so what we do is, is I just want to let you to understand, whether you're Adam and Eve and her seeking after and desiring a piece of fruit, or whether you're Achan desiring treasure, or whether you're us today choosing whatever it is or desiring whatever we want uh, as far as a material thing, I want you to know when a believer suffers from the sin of materialism, And loves things more than their God. Bad things always happen. And so what we want to do is we want to take a look at that this morning. And what I want to show is this morning is that we we want to see three dangers concerning the sin of materialism in the life of a believer. Three dangers concerning the sin of materialism in the life of a believer. Number one, the first is this. The sin of materialism impedes our progress. It impedes our progress. Notice, if you will, in chapter 7 and verse 1. The Bible says there, he says, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. They took something, in other words, that did not belong to them. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Now, to really appreciate the scripture, you have to understand the context. Israel has just finished and really had victory in one of the greatest battles in their history, the battle at Jericho. We know that story from little kids, right? Joshua fought the battle. You guys know the story, right? And so what what happens is God leads leads them to this incredible victory. They had no way of penetrating those walls. And so what God said is, listen, I'll tear down the walls. You just submit yourself to me and trust me and I'll do the rest. And so what he says is, I want you to march around. They marched around. He goes, I want you to blow some trumpets. They blew some trumpets. Now I want you to shout. They shout. Not normally how you try to tear down a wall and defeat an enemy. But God said, it's me. It's not the method. So they go about doing this. They entrust God. Those walls fall. They go in. They completely wipe out the enemy. And not one of those people, one of God's people, are harmed 
within that particular thing. And so God gets the glory for that. But before they went in, God gave them specific instructions. Before they went in, through Joshua, Joshua told the people that they, he says, but you, verse chapter 6, verse 18, but you keep yourself from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel things for destruction and bring trouble upon it. So here's the idea. God said, I don't want you to take anything. When you go in, usually we would take all the material things and take it with us. It was the plunder there. He says, but I don't want you to take any of it. I want you to destroy the majority of it. But some of the things, and he says this in verse 19, things like gold, silver, bronze, iron, precious metals, semi-precious metals, I want you to give to me. Take it to me and put it into my treasury, but I don't want you to receive or to have any of it. Now, why in the world does God do that? I think there's a couple reasons. I think, number one, he knows our propensity to love stuff. Anybody out there have a propensity to love stuff, right? I mean, if you get ticked off every time there's a scratch on something, you know, and you baby it, man, I know how you are with your cars, waxing, wax on, wax off, you're sitting there and everything is good. Somebody bumps into it, something happens and you just have a hissy fit, okay? If you get upset when your grandbabies come in and they sit on your lawnmower and you start cussing, you're probably suffering from materialism, okay? I'm just trying to give you an example, all right, just to kind of throw it out there for you. But God understands that. So what he says, he says, listen, because I just destroyed this particular group of people, he goes, I did it because they began to worship the creation rather than creator. I'm going to protect you by taking it all away. Second thing that he did was this, I believe, is it was to illustrate God, that God owns everything. Do you guys know that? The God is the owner, the rightful owner of all things. Jesus Christ is the rightful owner. He has the title deed in his hand, which was given to him by the Father. We see that in the book of Revelation. But God owns everything. If you create something, you therefore own that particular item. He created you. He created me. He owns all things. You and I are at the very best stewards of what God has entrusted us. You own nothing. I own nothing. God has given it to us to do everything we can to propagate the gospel and make God's name great. That's what he has entrusted for that, to meet our needs and to make his name great. And so what he wanted to do is he wanted them to to um, to see that he owns everything. The third thing, the reason that he did this was because that people would fully depend on God. You know, sometimes we find ourselves, you know, have you ever noticed that there's never enough money in the bank account? No matter how much you have in there, even when there's a lot in there, if there is ever a lot in there, right? And sometimes you sit there and go, well, we, you know, we probably just need a little bit more. We need a little bit more. And what we do as God's people, oftentimes we probably trust more in our bank account than we do in a holy God. And he says, listen, I don't want you to trust what you have. I want you to ultimately trust me. So by giving everything over to God, everything that they would receive would come from him. Well, it seems like everybody, almost everybody, 9.99.999% of all the people seem to get it. But don't you know that there's always one that doesn't, right? And there's a man by the name of Achan that we read about here. He doesn't get the memo or he just doesn't like the memo and he doesn't understand it. Or truth of the matter is he just doesn't like it. So he does the very thing that God told him not to do. And things go from really good to really bad really fast. As a matter of fact, what we find is in verse 2, as we find that Joshua and his men begin to move on to the next conquering, to the next city, to the city of Ai. And what they want to do is they just want to keep on moving on and keep victory after victory after victory. Momentum is on their side. But they find that things change very quickly because when they send spies into Ai, this is a very small city. 
Very small. It doesn't have the great walls that the city of Jericho do. And what they find is they come back and they say, listen, don't trouble all the people, the spies said, by bringing the whole army up there. This particular battle can be won just with 3,000 men. That is plenty. That is more than enough than we need to have the victory. Well, they set out and they began to besiege that city of Ai. And instantly they knew that something was radically different now. Because 36 of those men dropped dead, were killed by the sword. And they began to run. Fear began to set in. And they began to run from their enemies. The Bible says, and the hearts of the people melted and became like water. And so because the mission right now is impeded, what we find is that Joshua is frustrated. The leaders are frustrated. The people are frustrated. They don't know what's going on. And in verse 6, the Bible says, And Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. And the elders of Israel... Um, and the elder, excuse me, elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we have been content to dwell among the Jordan? O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? Now notice this. He's going to give you the reason why he's so frustrated. Here's the reason. In verse 9, For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, And will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great glory? The reason that Joshua is so upset, the reason he's so frustrated, is because he realizes that he is on mission with God. That God has a plan, that God has a sovereign will. We know what that sovereign will is. And he wants to be a part of it as a believer in him. As a child of God, he wants to be a part of it. But he knows right now he's frustrated because there's something that has gone wrong. And and, and, and the advancement of the nation of Israel taking part in this mission has been impeded. In other words, God's name is not being made great amongst the nations. When they defeated Jericho, all the nations found out. And God was glorified through that. But now what are they finding out? That God can't even take care of his own people. So he's frustrated, and that's why I ask, God, what will you do to make your name great? See, that's what you and I are all about. You say, what's our purpose in life? Making the name of God great amongst the nations. What are you doing? So people look at you and go, man, you must serve a great God. Why? Because you are a sorry sap, and God has really done some amazing through you things through you. And you sit back and you go, praise God. God, that he can even use me, that God can be glorified because how he is using me here and now for his glory. So when that's not done, what happens? They get frustrated. And so in verse 10, God begins to speak to him and he says, the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up. Consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourself for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. When he says to consecrate yourself, what he says is in essence to repent. He says, there is sin. People have taken what is rightfully God's. They have, they have actually taken things that they should not have, that God has forbidden. And now they are taking things that are not theirs. They put things among themselves, which really belongs to God. And he says, as long as that continues to go on, he goes, I will not be with you. You will fail. And so what he says is, he says, repent. 
Get your life right. What does that mean? Turn from what we're doing and begin to do what we know is right that God has revealed in his word. And so that's what he's calling the people to do. So what I want you to see first and foremost here is this, is that one man's sin impedes the progress of the whole congregation. One man's sin impedes the progress of the whole congregation. Now, for we as Americans, you know, we're, 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 we enjoy this rugged individualism, don't we? Right? Hey, listen, nobody can keep you down. You, 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 you can become anything you want to. I thank God that my parents didn't lie to me and say I could be president of the United States. I think they took one look at me and said, this boy will never be the president of the United States. And so I'm so glad they didn't lie to me. And they would never say you could be anything in this world because they knew that God had not equipped me for with all the mental capacities or physical capacities that maybe that I would need for certain things. Instead, what did they say? They said, listen, you could be all that God wants you to be. You could be all that God ultimately wants you to be. And that was a great encouragement to me. And so what happens here, though, what we see is simply this. We see that these people are on mission with God, but the whole congregation stops because it's one man's sin. Even though we struggle with this idea of being individualist, really the word of God always refers to their people as what? As a congregation, as a group, as a family, and the New Testament church as a body. And so here is one man's sin, and specifically, what sin is it? It's the sin of materialism. He's reaching out and grasping that which God told him not to. And he's also holding those things that God has. And it is keeping the whole congregation from doing the mission that God has called them to do. Now, church, we need to reflect in the same way. God is very clear that each and every one of us will stand before his judgment seat individually and give an account for our lives. What we did with what God has given us. But let me be very clear about something. At the same time, we are a congregation. We are the body of Christ here at Celebration Baptist Church. We have fingers, we have toes, we have elbows, we have eyes, we have eyelids, uh, we have ears. We have all these parts that come together and we work together for what? To propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are all together working in the mission of God. And here's what you need to understand. Is if there is even one part of that member that is affected. It affects the entire group. Have you ever smashed your finger with a hammer? Have you ever stubbed your toe on the nightstand? And you begin to do Christian cussing, right? Right? You're sitting there, you're just throwing whatever out, doing everything you can. Lord, please just purify my mind and my heart, right? And my speech. And you're throwing all those different things out. And, and, and what I'm saying is your whole body rejoices in that pain, does it not? Not rejoices, but you know what I mean? It feels, it experiences. Your whole body tenses up because of what's happening there. What's well, the same thing here? We talked about a young, a young man today that lost his brother. And, 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 and many of you are feeling that pain in which, he, in which he is experiencing. Your heart goes out to him. But in the same exact way, when you and I sin, we do not sin as an island. That particular sin affects the whole. And specifically, when there's any time that you and I are struggling with this specific sin, the sin of materialism, where we love and desire the creation over the creator, or when you and I are pursuing this, the pursuit of our life, or we are withholding things that are rightfully God's, you know what it ultimately does? It impedes the mission of us as a congregation as a whole from advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to make something very clear. I want to make it very clear to you this morning that that doesn't mean that the mission of God is impeded. It just means that our part and participation in it is, is impeded. You say, well, what do you mean by that? You know, God does not need you. 
Do you, do you realize that? Uh, it's interesting to me when pastors get up and they, I don't know if they're laying a guilt trip or what they're doing, but they get up and they go, listen, God needs you. There are people dying. We got to help God. God doesn't need any help. You guys do realize this. Yes. Uh, we're not, we don't, we're in no need of helping God. God sits there and says, listen, if you don't, if you don't want to share, if you don't want to share your faith with people, that's fine. I'll just find somebody else. That's what he did with the Jewish people. The Jewish people, he said, listen, you need to trust me. They didn't trust. He says, fine, you all die in the wilderness, walking around in circles for 40 years. I'll just raise up a whole new group of people. So the idea is God doesn't need us to do his will. We do his will. Why? Because we are his people. We want to take part. We want to make his name great. Why? Because he saved us. He redeemed us. You and I both know we were undeserving of being saved. Anybody? Raise their hand. Anybody undeserving of being saved, raise their hand. And so when you and I begin to realize that God, before the foundations of the earth, he chose you and I, set us apart, saved us in spite of our sinfulness. And he overlooked, he passed over that particular sin. He sent his only son to make his relationship with us right. And we were born again. Well, guess what? That's the greatest joy anybody could ever have. That was the greatest news we could have ever heard about Jesus dying in our place. So we as the people of God want what? To be on mission with God. We want others to know about him. But here's the key. As a congregation, even if one member is struggling with the sin of materialism, It impedes the movement of God's entire congregation and what we can accomplish for the will of God and for the glory of God. So the first danger is this. The sin of materialism impedes our progress. Secondly, we see that the sin of materialism is invisible to others. This is why it's so dangerous. Now, what's interesting about all this is that God tells them to repent. And then he tells them, he gives them very specific instructions on how they were to find out who the guilty culprit was. Because at this point, they know something's wrong. They know that somebody is struggling with materialism, the sin of materialism, but they just don't know who it is. So what God does, he does this very lavish thing. In verse 8, 16, he explains. So Joshua rose early in the morning, and he brought Israel near, uh, near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of uh, the Zerites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man, and Achan the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah was taken. So this is God's plan. God says, you don't know who it is, but I'm going to reveal it to you. Okay, Joshua, I want you to line up all 12 tribes. Now remember, there are two and a half million people in these tribes. All right. They all line up in their tribe. He says, I want them to pass by and I'll show you which tribe is the guilty tribe. You send them by. So they send the tribes. They go by. Then they go break up in clans inside of that particular tribe. And they all walk by. God shows them which one. Then all of a sudden they come by a household and God shows them which household. Then they come man by man. And finally, the law is led to whom? To Achan at that particular point. But here's the interesting thing. Up until that point, they knew there was a problem. They knew there was a problem because the gospel was being, or the mission of God was being impeded, but they had no idea who in the world it was. It brings up a very important principle. Listen to this. The sin of materialism cannot be identified from outward appearances. What's interesting is, here's a man who is guilty, but nobody has any idea who it is. And from what we can tell, Achan is just rubbing shoulders with everybody else. There he is, he's walking, he's talking, he's eating. They might even have some conversations and sitting there going, man, I wonder who's guilty about this. I have no idea. They're worshiping together. All seems to be okay, but at the same part, there is somebody 
who is completely and utterly guilty of this sin. They've got some things that is ultimately God's. Now, folks, why is that so dangerous? Well, it's because it happens probably almost every week in the congregation at Celebration Baptist Church. There are people who come that are members of Celebration. They've come and they're very active. Maybe they greet at the door. Maybe they don't. Maybe they they help. They serve. You see them. Everybody kind of knows their name. Everybody is excited when they see them. They're, they seem to be ministering to other people. They talk with other people. But yet they come and they sit here. And just like Achan, they're struggling with that sin of materialism. Their life is still pursuing the things of the material. And they're withholding their tithes and offerings, which rightly belong to God. And so what are they doing? They're doing what Achan did. The Bible says in verse 10, I'll just read it to you. He says, they have stolen and they have lied and put them among their own belongings. They're guilty not only of stealing what is not rightfully theirs, but what else are they doing? They have lied. They're going about and you might be going about right now saying, hey, everything is okay. Everything is all right. I'm walking with God. I'm serious about God. But what we don't know is that lying beneath that, which is hidden, is the sin of materialism, and you are holding that which ultimately belongs with God. Now you say, well, how, why do we not know that? Well, it's because we don't put your giving statement up on the big screens. Can you imagine doing that? Can you imagine? Some are laughing, some are going, that's not right, that's not even funny. Okay, that's not funny, all right, all right? And so, so what happens is, if we put all the giving statements up there, we could sit there and go, okay, we're going to start, we're going to go through, here's the giving statement, all right? We don't do that. So literally, people could go looking on the outside completely spiritual, completely giving, completely on board with God, when all the time they're really withholding that which is God and struggling with this horrendous sin. Now, there are two important implications of this. Here's the first implication. First of all, we must resist judgment. We must resist judgment. You say, now, what do you mean by that? Well, again, if you can't tell, you cannot tell who is struggling with materialism by looking them from the outside. You guys got that? Because what we begin to think is if they have this or if they drive that or if they have this size house, then certainly they're struggling with materialism. But that's not true. Did you know a person that has absolutely nothing at all, not two nickels to, grow, to put together, they could be absolutely racked and imprisoned by the spirit of materialism because all they're doing is lusting over what they do not have, coveting what they do not have. But on the other side, There are people that have a lot, but they don't struggle with materialism at all. There's a couple that I met, and they're truly an example of people that I I really am just amazed by. They own a business, and they started from the very beginning. They said, God, we're going to give 10%, but as time goes on, we're going to give more and more and a greater percentage to you for the kingdom of God. And today, at least the last time I talked with them, they were living off 20%, and they were given 80% for the propagation of the gospel around the globe. They were taking everything from their business, all the profits, and they were sowing it. And they were supporting literally missionaries all the way around the world in unreached people groups. And guess what was happening? People were come to faith in Jesus Christ. And you know what ultimately happened with, with them? They kept struggling when they said, Mike, we're still struggling. Because we're sitting there going, yeah, we're living off 20%, but I think we could do even more. Now, here's the key. You would never know that they were doing that. Because they don't wear a sign, I give 80%. They, they just don't do that. The, the, the tithing records aren't noticed. But instead, what they do is people will look at them and go, man, they've got too much money. I actually heard that about this couple. Because they said, man, look at that big house. Look at that particular type of car that they drive. You can't drive that car unless you're materialistic. 
And here are these people that are constantly sitting back going, how can we do more for the propagation of the gospel? So what you've got to understand is you and I can't recognize it by looking outside. So you and I cannot judge each other with that. You can't just look at a person going, they're giving, they're not giving. That's not the way to be able to do it. Second thing is the second principle is do not fear the judgment of others. Dan fears the judgment of others. So I'm going to tell you a story about Dan. When we first started our very first week of Simply Live, I, the pastor, and some of you believe that I'm bugging your phones and chasing you, and I did that very thing with Dan. When we got done for the very first week and said, okay, we're going to Simply Live, he and I knew that we weren't going to go out to lunch, and we love food. We love it. We, we run a million miles a week because we love food so much, Right? And so what happens is this, is, is Dan pulls out of the parking lot. I pull out, he's driving down the street. I'm following after him. And, and I think I called you. I can't remember if I called you or talked to you or whatever it was. But all of a sudden, he pulls in to Winn-Dixie. And I pull in right after him. And he knows I'm behind him. So he kind of drives, and he kind of drives in this kind of obscure, oblique kind of area, right? And the pastor, of course, comes and parks right next to him, right? So he gets out, and he goes, hey, man, what you doing? I said, well, I just got to go get some peanut butter. We're going to have some peanut butter. Boy, doesn't that sound spiritual? We're going to go get some peanut butter and jelly, man, so we can have lunch. It'll live some, man, that just sounds so good. Well, Dan, at that particular point, sat there and goes, yeah, well, um, I'm just going to go right over here real quick. Uh, we're going to go get some pizza, but we have six people in our family, and I figured if we could feed the whole family for $2 a person, that's pretty good. That's living simply, don't you think? And what you could tell, Dan, what you could tell is Dan is squirming, okay? All right? Dan is squirming. Dan is sitting there going, hey, listen, I need to go ahead and explain myself that, hey, listen, we're getting pies, and if you divide that all up, it's two, 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 two. Listen, we don't want to become that type of church. We don't want to become that kind of church that when God blesses us and gives us way more than we could ever imagine for us to sit back and be ashamed of what God has provided for us. Sometimes some of us know that we need a vehicle or we need a home and God will just do some supernatural things or God will give you the work to be able to afford that home. And oftentimes we don't want to sit there and slouch down every time God, you know, we buy something and go, well, you know, maybe I shouldn't have had it. But it's something, just, can't we rejoice with each other? Can't we just sit there and say, man, God has blessed you, brother. That's an awesome thing. God has blessed you with that house or with that car or whatever it is. Man, that's a wonderful, awesome thing that he's given you. I mean, look, I've had other people, another person at the same time turned around and they got a free gift certificate, free gift certificate to a restaurant. And they said, Mike, when we went in, we were kind of looking around to see if anybody could see us. And we went in and we ate and we came out and we wanted to make sure that people saw us going in with the gift certificate. We were kind of waving it when we went in just to make sure. Listen, listen, this whole month, I want you to know that God called you to set you free. And that we do not have these humanistic standards that we place on each other by what kind of car you can drive or what kind of clothes you can wear or what kind of house you can have or what kind of toys you can have. That's not the, that's not the essence of spiritualism. That's what deeply depraved people do is try to build a fence and say you need to live by this humanistic standard. And the truth of the matter is we don't do that. God came to knock that thing down. So you sit back and you say, well, what is, what is ultimately the answer to all this? Is Notice this, recognize the true judge God. God is judge. See, what we need to do is this. We need to make sure that we're not using this. Some of us are sitting there going, that's right. Judge not lest you be judged. I'm not going to fear the judgment of anybody. I'm going to buy whatever I want to. You see what I'm saying? You don't use it to cover your sin. Okay. We don't use it to go, oh, my brother Mike said it's a blessing. Check it out. Oh, it's good. 
And the whole time in your heart, you know that you're just stealing from God. And so what we do is we let God be God and be the judge of one another. Mike's not the judge. Mike's really not following people when they leave here to see where they're eating. I promise. I was getting peanut butter. Man, that sounds good, doesn't it? Peanut butter. And so it's not that at all. But what I want you to understand at the same time is you need to feel when you're walking rightly with God and you've worked through this and you're giving your tithes and your offerings and you sit there and say, God, I'm just laying it all on the table. If you want to take it tomorrow, you could take it tomorrow. If there's a need, God, you lead my heart. It's all available to you. But you don't have to sit there and you don't have to hover and be embarrassed of God's great giftedness to you. The key is for you to work it out. See, that's where the difficulty comes in. If I get a raise or if I get a gift in the mail or if I get something, what I have to do every time that I get that is say, God, is what you've provided for me, is this for me to enjoy a blessing all by myself? Or is this for me to be a blessing to someone else? You say, well, what is the answer? That's what you have to work out between your God. You have to work your salvation out before God. You guys get that? And so we need to not judge one another. And that's it. Let God be the judge. Here's the third danger. Not only does the sin of materialism impede our progress, and does it, the sin of materialism, it's, in, it's invisible to others. But thirdly, the sin of materialism impacts our loved ones. It impacts our loved ones. Now, notice what happens here. Verse 19, Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now when, uh, um, what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua. Now, isn't this interesting? Doesn't this remind you of your kids? Where you sit there and you think one of your kids did it. And they sit there and go, I didn't do it. And you say, you're lying. Right? Right? And then you beat them. And you realize that, okay, maybe they didn't do it. And then you get to the next. I shouldn't say beat. That's, that's bad. But, you know, you discipline them in the name of Jesus. You do not spare the rod. Okay? And so what you do is then you get to the next kid. Right? And you're sitting there going, did you? You... You're actually the one that did it, huh? He's actually innocent. Now you're going to get the double portion. Finally, you get to the culprit, right? And you're like, dude, why didn't you tell me this from the beginning? This is Achan, except for two and a half million people later, okay? And so he's sitting there and he's like, look, I did it. I got caught. I'm guilty. Now listen to, how, listen to his voice. See if you can hear the affection for the material in his voice. He says, truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar. And 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Did he count the 200 shekels of silver? Did he weigh the 50 shekels of gold? I have no idea. He says, then I coveted them and I took them. Now, this sounds very familiar, doesn't it? It takes us all the way back to the garden account in Genesis chapter 3. There in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6, we read of Eve there. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight, to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and she ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. See, we're seeing a problem here. When we struggle with materialism, it not only impacts the congregation, but it really negatively impacts those that are closest to us. Eve, when she fell at the sin of that materialism, who was the first one to go down with her? Her husband. Now, Achan has sinned. And who does he take down with him? Well, the scriptures tell us uh, there in verse 24. This is in Joshua and all Israel with him, Achan and the son of Zerah, the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold. And notice this, and his sons and his daughters. 
and his oxen and his donkey and his sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they were brought to them to the valley of Accor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remain to this day. Then the Lord turned from his, ang- his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of the place is called the Valley of Accor. So here's what's interesting. It's not only his own materialism that drags him down and keeps him from entering into God's rest, where he's fully and completely dependent upon God, the place where all of us are striving to be. Instead, he brings his family with them. And man, let me just say a word to you very quickly. Guys, you and I are called of God to provide for our families. If you agree with that, say amen. Like a man. Okay, let's try one more time. God has called us to take care of our families and provide for our families. If you agree with that, say amen. Amen. And God has also given you abilities and he's entrusted you with gifts. And some of you are very, very talented. Some of you are wonderful with business. Some of you are wonderful with dealing with your hands. Some of you just know how to do things. Business oriented, just amazing with things. And so what the Bible ultimately tells us is this, is that you should be working as hard as you can to become all that God has called you to be. Do you understand that? If there's an opportunity for you to move up the ranks, man, and it doesn't defile and keep you from God, then you, you work this up. God, God doesn't mind you making a ton of money. Do you get that? There's nothing wrong with you be sitting there. Here's where the problem comes. We are so deranged as Americans. Here's our problem. As Christians, we have bought into, son, you work your tail off. You do a lot of things, and you'll be able to have a lot of stuff. You'll be able to have a lot of stuff. And the reason that we say that is because that's what our children see. We're working, and we're giving everything that God has given us, and we're given all the finances that he says to go and to buy more stuff. And what happens is, whether you believe it or not, you are teaching your children. They're learning how to live through you. They begin to think the same thing. Man, it's all about working hard. It's all about working hard, not for the propagation of the gospel, not to be used of God, to give it to God, to, for us to be able to see God work in a great and mighty way. But rather, it's just about me building my own kingdom. And the sad part is, is just as the wrath of God poured out on him, they got caught in the crossfire. And guess what else? They got wrapped up in the whole thing. Basically, as an innocent party, for the most part. And the Bible even teaches us in the book of Malachi that this, he says that those who withhold that which is rightfully God's, the tithes and the offerings, he says ultimately there, he says that there is a curse placed on that person. And with them, guess what? That hardship affects the family as well. Let me say this. I want to say this very gently and, and, and very lovingly, because this is a lordship issue for us. And just if there was any other problem in our church, I would not be afraid to approach that problem and preach it biblically. But we do, by all kind of, uh, from what we can tell, we do have a giving problem here at Celebration. We have a giving problem. When you total the people that we have, of, what, uh, of about 500 people, 450 to 500 people a week that come, and you just look at the mere statistics... You just look at the statistics of what a church our size, with our demographics, with people being blue-collar, white-collar, all mixed together, with the same amount of children. We are almost a, a third or more below what really this church should be giving, just if people were giving tithes and offerings. Not over and above, but just be giving their tithes and their offerings. 
And here's what I was going to say. I bring that up because it's a problem. And if it's a problem in giving and people are withholding that which is rightfully God, then I need to warn you to repent of that, to turn, so that that danger is not brought to you and also to your children. But here's the thing. You say, well, whose problem is it? Who's at fault? Well, I don't think it's the children that are at fault if the giving is not right. Is it? I mean, my, 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 my eight-year-old's not making a whole lot of jack. You know, you know what I'm talking about? And it's not our wives, is it, man? Because we have been called to provide and to lead and to take care of the family and to take care of our homes. If we have a giving problem, which we do, it's because we have a man problem. Men, some are, but some aren't, leading their families for the kingdom of God. They're just simply not. And so what I want to encourage you to do today is this, is do not be one of those folks that lead their family under the same condemnation as Achan did. Repent. Turn from that. Show your family and lead your family and show them what it is all about to work hard, to get a degree or to get a position, to grow and to have that in and show them how you're doing this, not just to build your kingdom, but to build the kingdom of God. Now, what is the motivation behind this? How are we motivated? Well, first of all, it could be the threat of God's discipline. I've heard people today, uh, we, I preached this one time, and I remember somebody coming back, and this is what they said to me. They said, well, Brother Mike, thank God we don't live in Old Testament times, man, because <laughs> I'd be right there fried with them. And I'm sitting there going, okay, so you're banking on continuing in your sin, not giving God what is his, and you're banking on the fact that God is not going to burn you? And the wrath of God fall down on you? That's your motivation to continue in your sin? So I don't think that's where you kind of want to be. Because the word of God knows that we're disciplined. That, that God disciplines us. And so how many of y'all know that? When we don't do what is right, God disciplines us. And so God might discipline you very well, even in your finances, by doing what? By not giving and setting apart what is rightfully God's to begin with. And so what we find is this is the great motivation, though, is not for us to sit there and go, man, I might die. I might get burned. My, this bad things are going to happen. i got to start giving. That motivation won't last. And I don't think it's the true motivation that really makes a difference. What is the motivation? I think that we see it here. When it says in the scriptures here at the very end, when it says in that they raised over him the great heap of stones that remains to this day, then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Here's the key. By one man's sin, all were condemned. And by one man's death, they were all made righteous. The wrath of God was turned away. What does that sound familiar with? Jesus Christ. It reminds us of what Jesus Christ did for us. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 15, he says, For if many died through one man's trespass, meaning Adam, much more has the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Do you know why it's so easy for me to call you, you who are true believers of saints of God? is because in your heart, there has been nothing that has been granted greater to you than eternal life. That God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die in your place, to take the righteous wrath of God away from you onto his son so that you and I can live. Man, why would we not want to give and be a part of that God and that kind of kingdom? That's what we want. 
That's the motivation. God, you're, we do not sit back and say, God, I'm, I'm going to give because I'm afraid of your wrath. We sit back as believers and say, I'm going to give because you've taken away your wrath. Because of your son, Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus Christ, if you've never repented of your sins and accepted by faith the completed work of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection on the cross to pay for your sin debt, today is that day. Today is that day. I'm going to ask if you would to close your eyes and bow your heads.